0: Welcome to It Came From The Deep, a narrative podcast series based on the novel by best-selling author Maria Lewis. That's me. And I'm Blake Howard, head of One Heat Minute Productions and the guy behind shows such as One Eight Minute, Increment Vice, All The President's Minutes and more.
1: And more, including Josie and the Podcats, a six-part limited podcast series about the 2001 cult film Josie and the Pussycats, which we worked on together.
0: But we're not here to talk about that today. Today, we're here to break down the latest chapter from It Came From The Deep. Now we can't start talking about anything before we talk about ultimately what is the greatest dedication almost of all time, <laughs> and it's like it's like if you are gonna get if you're gonna get my attention with a book, and I actually couldn't wait till I had the physical copy after only having a digital copy for so long, but if you start a book that says to see men everywhere, S E A space M E N, you've already got you've already there's already so much favor you've you've garnered from that introduction to this. I, I just feel like it was such an amazing decision and just like a stroke of pure genius on your part. So, uh, what was it just because you were like I want to tell a silly dirty pun joke at the beginning of my book for fun? Is that is that exactly how it yes. started?
1: <laughs> Speaking of strokes, yes. Um I everything I do is kind of with a wink, like especially with books because you have to read them over And through them so many times. So I put as many things in there to make other people laugh as I do to make myself laugh. And I was thinking like I always, my dedications in each book are always very carefully considered. Like to say, I dedicated a book to Mariah Carey and it means as much for me as a book that I've dedicated to a friend that passed away. Like that's testament to how much I love Mariah Carey. But in this instance, it was just right there. And I think from memory, (laughs) I'd just done like a rewatch of the Austin Powers trilogy, (laughs) you know, the godfather of comedy trilogies. The the
0: godfather (laughs) of pun comedy trilogy.
1: There's some really good semen jokes in there, uh, in the submarines and stuff, and it was just like made me chuckle, and I was like, is this inappropriate to do? Because it was kind of, it's the first book that I'd done that was. I would call it new adult, maybe more than young adult. Um people had yes. tried to call who's afraid young adult. And I was like, "Fuck no." Like all of the characters, like the youngest character is 22 and then to 4000. Um and also, you know, there's decapitations, uh, drug use, sex, like it's crazy. Uh, the frequent use of the word cunt. <laughs> I was going to say the frequent use of the word cunt
0: the- and I remember I remember my nieces getting a dedication from you in, in the who's afraids. Cause obviously the family is supporting, you know, who, who we lovingly call Auntie Mads and, and, as the family supporting, and I remember you wrote one of the dedications and I can't remember it verbatim, but it was something like, please make sure y- your mum tells you when you're allowed to read this or something to that effect. Yes. And it was in both of it the really girls. Stresses me it stresses It was both in the young girls' books. <laughs> so I think mum has kept them all of the books. I think, you know, <laughs> Auntie Jo is like a pile of books that are yours that are like waiting for them to be old enough. And she's usually the uh, the, the front line of reading them before she passes them on to the girls. So very, very funny stuff.
1: Yeah, that's kind of like my own projected fear because Who's Afraid came out end of 2015, start of 2016, which was sort of like in the wave of, you know, Hunger Games era of young adult stuff. And so I think people who weren't necessarily familiar with genre specifics were just like anything supernatural is young adult, which is definitely not the case. There are a bunch of books that were pushed into the young adult section or promoted as young adult, Um, not just my own, that had nothing to do with young adult. And Who's Afraid ended up in a few high school libraries, which like gave me nightmares because I was like, (laughs) if they're willing to burn Harry Potter's before they knew JK Rowling was a turf, like imagine what they'd do if they found out Who's Afraid was in a library because it should not be there. But at the same time, whenever like I got asked to do like you get asked to do school talks and stuff every now and again and like the librarians would always be chicks like firmly in my demo, you know, it would be like you know, <laughs> women with tats and dope hair and like have Legends. secret feminist agendas. And they'd be like, it's the most borrowed book in the school library. And that would always be because someone had read it and been like, what the fuck this should not be here. This is this crazy. Isn't is Let me read, read it, it right.
0: now before it gets pulled guys, read it right now.
1: Yes. So it came from the deep uh, is, is, on the bridge between young adult and new adult. If you're a publisher in publishing, you understand what those terms mean. Um, and essentially what that is just like the characters are in their late teens, you know, Kaya Craig, the main character is 18 and most of yeah, the other characters are 19, 20, 22 in that like bracket. So when I was writing that intro, it just seemed so perfect. And it was just, it made me laugh. And I was like, fuck it. If this goes nowhere, at least that will That'll make me laugh. There's no. not many books that are dedicated to semen,
0: you know? So <laughs> until this one. Um so, Until this one. So one thing I love about the prologue is that you start in media res, you kind of like write in situ of this thing that's happening. And mm. I know that you're gonna hate me for saying this, but like one of my favorite oh, no. one of my favorite movies of obviously of all time is <laughs> is Heat. And it reminded yes. and it reminded me the relationship between the lead detective and the crime scene officer reminded me of Vincent and Rachel, who is that? Who she actually appears twice in Heat, um, in the movie as like uh, the the sort of like funny relationship they have because he says, "Get your hands out of the man's pocket, Rachel." Like that's one of the lines mm-hmm. in the Heat crime scene thing at the beginning. And when I was re reading the book, like in preparation for this series, I was like, "That's such a cool little media res thing," and it's definitely. What it was indicative to me was number one, I knew a hundred percent that it wasn't obviously you being a fan of Heat ever, um, because with the stuff that I hadn't that even seen
1: Heat at you that point. You hadn't even seen it. I had it. never seen it. But what
0: it what it t- what it told me about your experience, no, and also knowing you, it told me is your, your experience as a police reporter is the rapport and the ball busting that happens between police and crime scene investigators who work together a lot especially if they're detectives and crime scene investigators who work together and obviously that's now become a trope because you know anyone who's had sort of an authentic uh you know a bit of an authentic bent with creating police drama they're like oh what you know i want i want to steal that i want to steal that that repartee and it's clear from like right at the beginning you've got this house that's very vividly drawn. You've got this crime scene that feels really lived in and and the wet crime scenes always feel like stickier when you're reading them. Uh, That's my experience. Mm. like It feels like it's going to be a mess, like the whole thing's going to be a mess. It's going to be really hard to track who was in there, who wasn't, how to track evidence through places that there's going to be lots of water and blood and all those sorts of things. But the one thing that struck me was that like a little bit of a strained relationship between police and Um, and and a crime scene investigator, which I thought was like a really cool touch um, and clearly something you probably observed on the beat.
1: Well, just the fact that you even compared anything I've ever made to heat, which is like, For me, means nothing, but also means so much because I know how much (laughs) heat means to you. I'm like, heat, shmeat. But I'm I'm like, is that a Tone lock reference? But um, for you to compare something to heat is like, that's a huge deal. I know how much that movie. But also, you know, testament to Michael Mann, like he researches the shit out of everything he does. That's exactly what I was going to say, that
0: your research ethos like is shining through.
1: Yeah, well, it was more like lived experience right like I wasn't even intentionally researching stuff when I was researching stuff and you know you talk about that rapport um between investigators and people who are processing crime scenes but it's also like court reporters on a scene beat reporters uh people who are like stringers so but what I mean by that is um Say, <laughs> so, uh, if you've ever seen the movie Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal, it's like people who are um, essentially work for no one, but they're like freelancers who cover the overnight shift. And oftentimes that will include um, any grisly like MVAs, motor vehicle accidents, any of that kind of stuff. Um, and you cover that sort of thing so many times, everybody gets to know each other really well. And you get this sort of like casual gallows humor in a setting that for anybody else would be super horrific. And the thing that you said about the scene being sticky is really interesting to me because um, if you've ever had the misfortune to bleed profusely from any orifice in your body, you know that blood is quite sticky. And when it's mixed with water in particular, um, wounds always look worse when they're wet. And so you could have like a small cut, but the second it gets wet, it looks like oh my god, I'm in Saving Private Ryan! Like it's just like the worst. And so I had this visual, um, and this is going to get super bleak for one second, but there was a friend of mine who um, was stabbed by somebody who was never caught, and they were quite brutally stabbed. They nearly died. They survived, and. She told this story about sitting on the bath. She was at her mother's house when this happened, um, her early mother, and she sat on the bathroom floor and remembered like looking down at the white tiles and like seeing her blood like in the in the divots of the tiles, like as it spread. In the grout. And I remember yeah. just yes, yeah, I don't know what it's called. I'm like divots, whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, the liney bits, where the other liney bits are. And that was such a specific and haunting visual and in the context of thinking of this crime scene that these people come across as professors dead there's blood everywhere but there's also water everywhere and how that how that looks like just the way a lot of blood or even a little bit of blood would spread in a lot of water is very specific and very visceral so it was drawing on Sort of a few personal anecdotes, but crime scenes that I'd also been on myself. Um, none of them that were in a place that had to try an aquarium inside, specific. No, no. But the actual house um, that this scene, the prologue, is set in, is a real house. Now, um, I mean, like where it, I was inspired by a real house, I should say. I don't know the exact street address or the inside of the house or anything like that. Even though I did sort of try and look it up, but it was on this lake. And it was called Lake Hugh Months on the Gold Coast, right? Which is um, a freshwater lake, which in and of itself is is quite rare. Like freshwater lakes on the Gold Coast, there's not really that many of them. Um, it's in mermaid waters for anybody who doesn't know. Anyway, on that lake, there was a house directly, like the bit that you would walk down this path, there would be like a little grassy knoll and along the edge of the lake, there'd be like a running path. And then across the opposite side of the lake, there was this one house that was always empty. I never, ever, ever saw anybody in it ever. And I would train at that lake from when I was like, say 10 to 20, you know, like for a decade, I was there at that lake, um, at least a few times a week. And then even once I'd gotten out of the sport, I would go there recreationally. I always found it really soothing. It's the basis of the lake for this book. Now the book, the lake in the book is called Lake Palats, not a real lake. Um, I fictionalized the lake because there were certain geographical things that I needed. And it's just easier to make that shit up than it is make to it base up. it on a real lake, make it up. Um, but set it in a real place. I do a lot of that in my novels. Like I combine real places with like fantastical elements, whether that's a creature or lake or whatever, but this house was like, one demonic entiled. library? It's
0: accessed by a translation. <laughs>
1: shout out Willie woman um by St James train station which is truly haunted so <laughs> this house was like white and tiled it was always empty it was just the weirdest place and I was always really obsessed with it and when I was sort of putting this prologue together because I wanted to start the book on an action beat like I wanted to start it on something where you could really easily establish that the stakes were high this is death and like this is this is how how high the stakes could go it could end up in a gruesome murder in an aquatic laboratory if you will um because that was something i would learned with who's afraid like originally the early drafts of who's afraid it just started with tommy and her mates in dundee in scotland and to be perfectly frank that shit's not interesting until you know there's something coming <laughs> yes. and something there's no really big event that happens until chapter four and so when i was reworking the edits and this wasn't a suggestion from my editor at little brown and a boatman who's amazing but when I was reworking the edits for who's afraid I had asked I was like do you mind if I just like do a prologue because I feel like we need to tell the audience how high the stakes are and drop them in an action beat and so that's why who's afraid starts with um Tommy Grayson's first sort of transformation and that was a like a I guess a storytelling device that I stole and used. It's not stole. It's my fucking work. I stole from my work <laughs> and put it in my work, but it's, it's a technique that I took from who's afraid and I put it in who's afraid too. Cause it also starts in a similar fashion with stakes being really high in that particular instance, a werewolf cult. And then it came from the deep. I wanted to start on a murder and, and start with some stuff that it's always a tricky line with police things, but also anything that's technical, like, you want the reader to feel like you know what you're talking about but you also don't want to ostracize them with too much technical terminology so it's about trying to sort of straddle that line um it's it's, and actually
0: one there's a couple couple of things i was just going to say is my wife's nana lives in Burley waters um so Mm. as i'd read just around the corner around the corner so i as i read um, it came from the deep. I I occasionally used to go for runs. Like I'd just like get you know um, g- get out of the family house for a bit and just like do a tactical run. And I, I occasionally would run around some of those lakes. And ar- around the time that I read it came from the deep, I was like looking around and I was like this. Re- like in my head, I'm like, this is exactly yeah. what I'd imagine, knowing that it was set sort of on the Gold Coast, and I was always wondering until we came to this exactly what you were talking about. But the other thing that you you touched on, which is, like it's kind
1: of it- creepy too, very as well. Like, so just to quickly jump in there, but like around Burley Waters, Mermaid Waters at sunset at dusk, because it's a lot of old people that live around there, so the streets are just empty. empty. There's not kids playing on the streets. There's not noise. It's just quite quiet and like, a little Truman Show esque, a little creepy. There's not a lot of so people running. Up.
0: Like that's the other thing as well. So it's like, True. So like you know, if you're around in Sydney or in, in Melbourne, I know it as well. It's like if certain times of the day you're running. There's like a stack of people like exercising on the streets, like in the suburbs. It's just like sometimes you're like, shit, I've gone at like peak hour. I need to go home for half an hour and wait till <laughs> these people go away. Um, but the other big thing is it's very Queensland because like you know, my wife and I've gone away on holidays without little one and stuff like that to Noosa. And one of the things, if if you don't know and you're listening to this and you're overseas or Noosa is like one of our top destinations. It's this is a beautiful coastal spot and um, in sort of mid North Queensland, it's like stunning, um, really great. And one of the things when you go there, it's like very, very well off area and there's some houses that are just unbelievable that are like on, on the Noosa waters, like on uh, um, uh, after the seawall and then on the water, like actually on the beaches, it's absolutely incredible. But one of the sort of like key tourist things that they tell you is that like, They have something, and I think the stat is, and it might have changed, but the stat is something like 7% occupancy in these opulent palatial homes year-round. And so what that means, like for folks who don't know what I'm saying, it's like, so only 7% of the year are there anyone in these fucking ginormous palatial mansions because the rich people go there for one peak moment of summer or one sort of thing. Or, or people rent them out in those times because rich people don't go there because they can travel there once every two years or whatever. So it actually means that, like, in these concentrated spots, like in the more touristy spots or in the more affordable spots, there's a sack of people. And then in these huge mansions, there's this whole big stretches that are just empty except for, like, groundskeepers or people who do yes. it. And so, you know, that's – And it. you
1: don't know what's in there as well. No. That's the other thing. And, like, and when you're, you, there could be a giant tank or, like, a little, <laughs> you know, boy dungeon. Or you got no uh, idea
0: when you're on the water because like that's the part of the big tour is they take you past and you sort of get to peer into these big beautiful homes yeah like- there's
1: Hugh Jackman's holiday home <laughs> and you're like oh that's nice for him and
0: you're like awesome is that why there's a big nude statue of Hugh Jackman in the lawn and you're like yeah there it is no but classic it's so, classic Hugh it's, yeah so Hugh um but no it's a really it's a really strange thing but it's also very Common thing in these like very beautiful spots that become super popularized because if it, you know, if you've got a stack of money um, out there and you're like, it, you know, money is no object essentially, you might buy a spot there, but you don't have to live there year round, you might work you know all over the world and then come back to this spot. But it's just you know, that's the other thing that rings so true is like there is a lot of emptiness in these areas. And I think that that's, that's part of like when you live in a tourist town, sometimes there's huge parts of it that are empty, not only from people commuting or people working, but it's just that emptiness that is so like, that's it's so prevalent in the area.
1: Yeah. I mean, that was kind of all the stuff that was trying to tap into this. Like the Gold Coast I've always sort of described as Australia's Florida and Florida has that (laughs) vibe too of like, permanent emptiness in a way like a mall when it's closed after dark yeah. and you're the only person left there and it feels like an echo almost of like what humanity used to be. I don't know. Um, but, no, but yeah, I, also think like-
0: I, I think that that's where I have an affinity for you living on the Gold Coast. Cause I grew up on the central coast and the, the major difference is Central Coast does have those tourist things and absolutely has those tourist peaks and has those things with the Gold Coast. The Gold Coast is far more attractive as far as tourism. But one thing that it has in common, I guess, is a feeling of sort of this year-round emptiness um, except for those peak periods because – people who lived there in the old days, like there was only such a small percentage of people who were lucky enough to live and work in the area. And usually they were tradies or people like that. Um, People who worked in like supermarkets or people worked around local accountants and stuff like that. So they would, everyone would commute and the whole town would empty and all the kids and the mums who worked at home and stuff like that would be at home and all the kids would go to school and they'd come home and there would still be like hours of the day before parents would get home. Like, uh, you know, at least 50% of the parents would come home. So there's always this emptiness. There's And, and that emptiness is like idle hands, people get up to mischief, but it's also cre- like, it can be super creepy as well because like the whole town feels like it's empty. And then literally from like post five o'clock all the way to like sort of 8.30, the whole town fills up, fill up for a small amount of time. And then all the lights go out because people have got to commute the next day. So it's it's that same, I don't know, it's that same energy um, except you know on, on the Gold Coast it's more sleeve tats and bikies firebombing shit. Um, but, but
1: yeah, there's a little bikies <laughs> reference in this prologue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not a believable crime scene if someone's not mentioning a bikie
0: hit, You know what I mean? In, especially on the Gold Coast. But it's uh, yeah, no that 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 was just you know I think something you all that all that experience that you've had is also part of what I think I'm attracted what what makes me attracted to this story is like once you've got me with that I'm like you've got all the textures and for someone who's like gone there and visited regularly without living there, it's like as you start to feel like at home and you're like, yeah, this is, this feels like a real lived in space. And now there's going to be some cool shit that's going to come.
1: And speaking of cool shit, I'm just going to reveal two wee Easter eggs that really won't make much difference to anyone, but I always put in like little Easter eggs and things to friends, whether it's like, there's an email address, for instance, in the Wailing Woman that is literally Blake's kids' names,
0: <laughs> like
1: a lot of stuff like that. Um, and in particular in this chapter, Lou Yen Chan, who's uh, the chief forensic officer, that is a little shout out to my friend. Yen, to Yen, and um, she's been, like, my legal advisor essentially on, on all the books um, from, Yen rules. you know, yeah, Yen does rule, back from, you know, when I used to write them <laughs> while working the late shift on police <laughs> rounds. <clears throat> and um, Senior Constable Housego is a little um, shout-out to a real-life police officer who um, was incredibly supportive and uh, like, you know, we always hear about so many bad cops and there are genuinely are so many fucked cops out there. But, uh, house was a cop who, um, really helped me out. I was walking home from work one time while working on the feed at SBS and I got attacked on my way home by this guy who I managed to like gently shank with my keys. I was able to run home, blah, blah, blah. It was a whole thing. And, um, Housego was the cop. Was the last name of the cop who attended the scene, and he was so lovely and so supportive, and never questioned my story. Like really, ran through all the details and just made that whole horrible experience way incredibly less horrible. I'm doing a terrible job of like talking about a nighttime assault, but um, he also will forgive up and you. Will forgive on- you
0: for reliving trauma. <laughs> for an Easter egg.
1: <laughs> he, he also called up for um called up to check how Watts was for weeks after the fact, like long after they'd brought the guy in and spoken to that person and everything. Dude. And um yeah, I will always appreciate that and it was just like such a horrible experience that was made slightly less worse by um a really thoughtful and lovely cop.
0: Can I can I say one thing is when yes. when you Knowing you, um, I saw when knowing I read, me. when I, when knowing I read, you. when I, when uh. I read Houseco, I read it as Houseco, right? Like, but sometimes you read books and you're like, you know, you, you hear <laughs> the, my favorite one ever is like, um, because I was a Bowie fan, obviously before a Harry Potter fan is that when I read Hermione for the first time, I knew that it was Hermione from well, the the Bowie song which J.K. Rowling got the name from, which is us to mm. Hermione." So you're like, "Oh, I know how to say Hermione when you read it, and not Hermione."
1: I thought it was, I thought it was her-min-ini. Her,
0: her, her-min-ini, uh, Hermione. Hermione, Hermione, whatever, like whatever it is, and and I totally could be, I, I could totally see people reading. Housego and like putting some kind of housego or like some like some Spanish like some Spanish. If I put reading. in a
1: little accent over a letter, I could have really you like could switched have really, it up a You could have really,
0: you could have really, um you could have really add some add some uh add some citrus to that name if you like. But I just I but I love that you're like a housego, not housego.
1: I'll That's how it. he said it too. I'll never forget it because I was man. like, I remember reading, I can like see it so clearly. My <laughs> mind retains information very weirdly. And um, for those who don't know, I had a minor stroke when I was 22. No big deal. You know, it's TIA. You MBD. learn to live it, love it. MBD. Uh, you know, jokes before strokes. But uh, the way my mind works is... <laughs> The way my mind works is like very weird and specific. I always used to have really high retention. Like they talk about Truman Capote having like 95% recall, um, for interviews and stuff like that. Now, whether that's actually true or not, a lot of people would say that it isn't because he like constantly misquoted people. <laughs> so I wouldn't necessarily say it was a Capote brain, but I did have very high recall for things like that. And then I had a stroke and my recall is different. My brain works differently, but I can see entire scenes and like particular incidences and stuff, like the smell, the numbers on a number plate, the letters, everything. And I can see his like constable house goes badge on his little shirt when they're rolled up after that thing that happened. And I just remember being like, I'd never seen that name before. It was like so unique. And I was like, Housego. Yeah. And then it was you know, I'd already written the book by that point and I just I just tweaked it. Uh, I just changed the name. I can't even remember what it was. Constable something else before. Control H I was just like
0: Control H, find and <laughs> replace baby. We're putting in House
1: Find and replace, which just in Who's Afraid to like fuck it, this is a podcast about this world, so I'm gonna go deep, but <laughs> in Who's Afraid to there was a cat name that I had put in the book, right? There's a character, minor character, he pops up in every single one of the novels in one form of the other, right? So, um I had named this cat a particular name, and it was a reference to a character in Far From the madding Crowd. And uh I had an editor (laughs) who was like, I think we should change the name of this cat. Um, because you know, far from the maddening crowd, you know, don't know what that is. It's a Thomas Hardy novel from, um, 1874. And they're like, yeah, listen, we reckon we should change the name of this cat. It's a bit too like literary. And I'm like, what are we, people are reading this book. (laughs) (laughs) If anybody's going to get a literary joke, it's going to be people who are reading a book. Like, let's just like, have the fucking cat name or whatever. Anyway. So, um, I had the cat name in there and, uh, it was changed in a later draft, right. Without my knowledge or permission, but that's just like, you know, how the editing process goes. Right. No big deal. Um, and the cat name was Mr. Oak. It was supposed to be a reference to like one of the male protagonists anyway. So the cat name gets changed by editors without my permission or knowledge. So I get a copy of uh, the book for the first time and there's this like not old wives tale, but this like sort of belief that whenever you get a copy of your book for the first time, the first page that you open it on will have a mistake on it no matter what. <laughs> <laughs> it'll be a typo, it'll be some kind of thing. So this is like it's a truth universally acknowledged that the first page you open on will have a mistake. I open Who's Afraid to, and I see the cat name has been changed. And I was like, what the fuck? I didn't change that. And then I was like flipped to the next page and it's the old name. So they hadn't done find and replace. They just literally like changed the cat name on one page and then left. It's only mentioned like three or four other times, but it was just one of those things that nobody has ever mentioned to me. (laughs) Nobody's ever noticed it, but it's one of those things that like at two in the morning, you know, that book came out fucking five years ago. I'll wake up and be like, Oh, they changed the fucking cat name. My God, every name is really important to me. You know, um, I try to keep, like a master document of every name, so I'm not repeating names, that has happened, but just in case, like, you know, I don't want to have too many Sue's in there or whatever or like too many Jeff Rose or, you know, pick whatever name of your choice. Um, So I'm always trying to be like quite meticulous about making sure there's no repeats, but in this particular case, I fucked up.
0: Well, I think (laughs) we just, we end there with whatever you want to name your pussy is completely up to you. (laughs)
1: Oh God. We started with semen and we ended up here. Who would have thunk?
0: <laughs> Anyone who knows you or and I would have thunk.
1: Yeah. That's the prologue though, baby. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, Sophie Parr is so great. She's truly like, I love listening to her read this story. Like her Australianness ness was very specific. I listened to like Adam had a huge list of people, um, who he auditioned for narrating this book. And Sophie was just she, like as soon as I heard her, I was like, "Yeah, that's it. That's that's yeah, the one right there." She, she just she captures sa- it. She
0: sounds like the. She sounds like someone you'd meet. She sounds like someone from a surf club. Exactly. She sounds like someone from yeah, a surf club. Yeah, that was kind of the whole point. And and that's not an insult to her. It's part of her character. It just comes out how it's however she's yeah. sort of able to most naturally nail it. But no, it's it's it's. Look, terrible.
1: if I had written Pride and Prejudice, maybe we'd be talking about somebody <laughs> else. But I didn't. <laughs>
0: It Came From The Deep is a narrative podcast series based on the novel from best-selling author Maria Lewis. Read by Sophie Parr and produced by Adam Boys at Thaumaturgy Post-Production Services. New chapters release every week with bonus episodes dropping in between with Maria Lewis and myself, Blake Howard, breaking down the plot, inspirations, and writing process. It Came From The Deep is part of One Hit Minute Productions. If you think aquatic humanoids deserve rights too, please like, subscribe, and share with your mermaids.